The views and opinions expressed by guests on this program are not necessarily the views of Thinking Bigger Business Media, Inc. or its employees. Welcome to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. Get the inside scoop on how America's most successful business owners transformed their entrepreneurial vision into reality. And listen in as some of the top business minds in the country serve up practical advice, tips, and insights for growing your business. Now, here's your host, Kelly Scanlon. Good morning. Welcome to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Thinking Bigger Business Media. We're very happy that you took the time to tune in today because we have a guest who is going to talk with you about why it is important as a business owner. If you want to remain competitive, if you want to grow your business, you need to be disruptive. In other words, if your business isn't constantly evolving, you're going to run the risk of becoming as outdated as Buggy Whips. Does anybody even remember the Buggy Whip as Buggy Whips or Kodak Film? And so this week's guest, Ken Thurber, who is the author of a hot new business book, Do Not Invent Buggy Whips, is going to be delivering some practical advice for reinventing yourself and your business and also about how you as a business owner can disrupt that status quo. But first I want to tell you just a little bit about Ken. He spent his career working in the fields of computers and system network architecture. He's written or led nearly 500 technical proposals. He's won over 200 of those, which have led to billions of dollars in research, development, and product work since 1969. And Do Not Invent Buggy Whips is his second book. He had another award-winning book called Big Wave Surfing, and he's also written or co-authored more than 27 books in the field of computer science and computer networking. He's also founded and operated several companies and has been a consultant to many of the Fortune 500 companies. And again, today we're going to be talking primarily about the concepts in Do Not Invent Buggy Whips. And uh, just a little aside there, the book has already, just it just came out, but it's already landed five awards and was an Amazon bestseller during the week of May the 22nd, ranking number three in two categories, small business entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship. So welcome to the show today, Ken. Thank you, Kelly. I'm glad to be here. Well, and congratulations. Wow, that that's quite a, a rise in such a short time for the book. Very happy to hear that. Well, we view the book as a product, and we tried to launch it as a product, and it did quite well. Well, and we're going to talk about the importance of how you position the products. And so let's let's back up a minute and get the big picture that you're talking about in the book, though, the status quo. So, so how do you rise above, push through, whatever terminology you want to use? How do you get beyond the status quo? I, I think you talk about two ways of doing that. So talk a little bit about that. Well, the status quo is, is a problem. Um, and it becomes a problem for lots of companies because they take a look at the status quo and they say, we're very successful, we don't want to change anything. The problem is, yes, the problem is that there are lots of people in the world, the second you become successful, is they look at that and say, well, we could do that too. Mm-hmm. But for them to be successful, they need to modify. They can't do the same thing you're doing, so they need to modify what they're doing compared to what you're doing just a little bit. And if you're just focused on the status quo, they're able to reinvent something that's just a little bit better 
and they can take your position as the leading product or uh, sales or, or company. So you have to constantly be evolving and reinventing yourself or your company or your product. Right. Well, and then if you – the other one that you talk about is uh, disruption, innovation, you know, the new product. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Well, in my personal experience over the years, what I've found is that there are constantly changes, but they're not just subtle changes, they're disruptive changes. And these disruptive changes allow you to go in and into a market that may not have existed in a primer, primary form and to create a product or a niche or to actually create a new market. And so you don't have to you don't have to just uh, – the only people who can succeed are not necessarily existing companies, but when you can find one of these disruptions, you can go in and cause a change to the status quo. Sure. Now, you almost make that sound sound easy. <laughs> we all know that that's not it, – it seems like, you know, from where I sit and where a lot of people in our audience probably sit today, that – we're so saturated with so many different things, and I always like to use the cereal aisle as an example. Um, you know, you walk down the cereal aisle and you think, how many different ways can you take, you know, wheat, oats, and and what other barley, and and create all these different cereals out of it? You know, isn't it just one one more of the same old, same old? So when you talk about innovation and new product development. How do, where do you even start? How do you even begin to figure out whether what idea you have in mind is something that it, somebody else has done, number one, and if and if it is and you still think it's a good idea, how do you change it just enough so that it is something new to the marketplace? It, it seems like it's uh, a fairly complex process. Uh, it can be a complex process. On the other hand, it can be fairly simple. I want to I want to take you uh, and let's walk back down your cereal aisle. Mm -hmm. So we walk down the cereal aisle and there's lots of cereals and I don't have a good example from the cereal aisle, but let's go to the end of the aisle and turn the corner and now we come down the the drink aisle. And so down mm -hmm. the drink aisle we have Coca-Cola products and Pepsi products and a variety of those kind of products. And one of the great disruptions that occurred in in that type of technology which seems fairly simple to say it's technology, but bottled soft drinks, was the Snapple Company. Snapple Company, uh, at one point in time, probably I forgot exactly when they first started, but uh, they weren't doing very well, and something happened that disrupted their supply chain a lot, and they started putting out these ads in California about uh, drinkers don't be concerned about the Snapple shortage. And that got people's attention, and suddenly there was a Snapple shortage. And that kind yeah. of bootstrapped that company up. Or if you uh -huh. if you think about Starbucks, uh, Starbucks had a great, uh, uh, it wasn't a technology story, but it was a coffee story, being able to create this idea of coffee. So it, these ideas can come from just uh, around where wherever you are. Um, Another example for you would be the Apple. Uh, when yeah. Steve Jobs introduced the first iPhone, he had a very simple quote. He basically says, today Apple reinvents the smartphone. So big companies can reinvent things. People like Snapple or Starbucks can start up and they can reinvent things. It's an issue of looking at 
the status quo products and trying to decide what kind of incremental improvements can we put on either a, a small store or a small product or something as big as a, a smartphone. Okay. One of the things that you talk about in your book, uh, you make a point of saying, is that limiting choices is absolutely critical. It's very important. Why do you say that? Because most people would think limit choices, the more choices, the better. So why is it important to limit choices? Well, the problem is that people, when they look at a product or they think about developing a product, they think about it and they say, well, it has to have all of these features, and they start to lay on lots of features and functions and twists on the thing. But the problem that you have is that when people look at a product, they have to make a decision very quickly. Do they like the product? Does it serve a need? And the more complex the product, the more complex that decision process. So what mm-hmm. you want to do is you have to limit the choices that you put into the product so that you can create something that some, when someone looks at it, they say, oh, yeah, I understand. I get this. I want one of these. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes when you talk about that the feature-laden products or just – uh, the number of products themselves, sometimes people, uh, they're, they're not even that much different. Uh, for example, last week I talked to the person who worked with Steve Jobs and helped name the iMac and, and put the i in all the Apple products. And he was talking about the same concept you are now and that that was one of Steve Jobs' genius. Part of his genius was that he recognized that you don't, like many of their competitors that are selling computers that you don't have 26 versions, you know, each with a number, not even a name, but, you know, it's a number that people can't register. And, you know, and so the the simplicity is very, very important there. Um, one question that I do have, you know, it goes back to the buggy wicks and the fact that if you're not moving ahead, that if I'm in your industry, in fact, your industry is surpassing you, you might be the poor guy or the poor woman there who's stuck holding this product that is not obsolete yet. It's certainly on the verge of obsolescence. So if your industry is passing you by right now, and you see that you're holding the, you're the one <laughs> holding the buggy whip, what kind of options do I have? Can I play catch-up? I mean, what's that going to require if uh, any of our listeners find themselves in that spot right now? Well, I can give you several examples. Mm-hmm. But first, let me give you a little small aside. I was at a a conference, and after the conference, I was with some friends of mine, and we were having some hors d'oeuvres and drinks, and this uh, woman came up to me, and she was talking to me, and she said, you know, I I really find the title of your book amusing because I actually work for a company, and we still manufacture buggy whips. Really? So that's not not to say that there aren't people. Yes, they they build them for Tennessee trotters and uh, Ah. little... uh, uh, so they have, if you look at a Tennessee trotter, they have the person behind and the little uh, little uh, kind of buggy for the race, and they have like a little whip. So she said yeah. there's, there still are uses for buggy whips. But the very point niche, is yeah. <laughs> it's very much of a, a niche. Uh, you may have to, uh, when you think about reinventing, if you're re- in a company that looks like they're holding the buggy whip, you may have to completely reinvent your company. A classic example of a company that did that is Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo used to be a stagecoach company, and then they had uh, guards, and then they went into the banking business. So there are examples of this transition, but what you may have to do is if you 
find that you're in a company that the product is becoming completely obsolete. The question is, can you use the cash flow from that company then to bootstrap yourself into a, a modified business? Sure. And I suppose, uh, and I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but just listening to you use the Wells Fargo example, uh, perhaps one of, you know, an exercise that you could do if you find yourself in that position is think, okay, what are all of the core uh, the functions that I have to or my company has to perform in order to produce those buggy whips, and could any one of those spin out on its own and help create a new a new company? Um, you know, you said they had the guards, and so it I can see how that would have progressed into where they are today. But so would that be one way that you could do it is to look at the various functions you're now having to perform to to create the uh, product that is approaching obsolescence and, and see if that could spin out into a new company? Yes, I like to think of it as as you have to answer three questions. And the first question, question is is based on just what you, you said. Mm-hmm. Given a, a company or a person, we have certain capabilities. <clears throat> and we need to analyze the capabilities in terms of the fundamental capabilities that we have. And then the question we want to ask ourselves is what if we took any one of these capabilities that is the what-if question. Just take something that we know, and what if we changed it? And change it in, try and change it in the most radical kind of technologies we can. I mean, just what are all of our alternatives to change it? And do any of those make sense? And you'll find that you, you have a lot of creativity there. Sure. Uh, then, then if you can answer that question, you know, what if we changed it? Well, then it would look like like product A instead of, the previous product, so then right. let's look at product A and say, does anybody care? That is, who cares? And if nobody cares, well, then we want to f- ignore that. We want to find something that if we change the technology we have, someone would care. Right. And then if someone cares, then the question is, is the market, is there a big market there? And so three okay. questions I think that you ought to look at is what if, who cares, and how big? <laughs> Absolutely. Now let's, let's go back to a minute to the who cares. Some people... Um, are very adamant about if you are, you know, you cannot create something and create the need. And other people say, oh, yes, you can. You can, you know, because you can get people so excited about it that even if they didn't, if they you know, they were living without it before, you've created such a, a market blitz or sensation that you've you've created the, the need, at least a psychological need for it. Uh, where do you fall on that? Can you, or can you do both effectively? You know, can, can it be one or the other? I think needs are constantly changing, and I think there are a wide variety of customers, and I think you can both convince someone that you've modified a product such that they need a new product, but I also think you can convince somebody that you've created a new product. Uh, You can find people that are early adopters. You can find uh, people that... uh, buy because of image, they want a you know a very big fancy car or very fancy watch. Uh, you can find people who have the ability to shape the market. And what you try and do is you try and build a product that in the who cares question that will engage some form of uh, people who are uh, image buyer or an early adopter and then get enough buzz going that you can create a mass market product. Sure. You also talk about pebbles in your book. What's the role of pebbles? Uh, pebbles is pebbles are 
uh, pebbles might be. Pebbles are a big problem. <laughs> uh, they're so little, though. They're pebbles. <laughs> yeah. Pebbles, uh, uh, pebbles are unique to human nature. Uh, as near as I can tell, people are resistant to change. They don't like to change or they get it stuck in their mind that this is the way something should be. <clears throat> and so what what tends to happen, and what I like to do, if I'm working at a concept, I'd like to bring it down in layers. That is, mm-hmm. I would like to look at, this is my big picture, and then these are the components to build my big picture, and then these are the details of the components. So if we just look at it at that perspective, big picture, uh, layers, and then, then the uh, components and then the details of the components. <clears throat> the problem that you have is people will suddenly dive in. They'll look at the big picture and say, well, you can't do that because that's too similar to what someone else did or or that's not the way I think it should be or you can't solve this detailed problem. Mm-hmm. Well, there may be a lot of solutions to these things as we start to go down and develop the product set, but if you immediately jump down to, well, you can't do that because you can't solve this little teeny problem, Okay. Then what happens is you can't go forward, and you get these right. basically obstructionist people involved. Mm-hmm. So what is the best way to get around these pebbles? Uh, what, what would you say if you're working on a team and the people themselves are pebbles? Uh, what, what, what do you do to get around them? Um, what is the strategy? That, that, is a diff- that is a very difficult question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> especially when people are involved. Uh, what some people would do is they just fire them. Uh, sure. I mean that's that's one extreme. The other extreme is you have to convince them that uh, either we'll solve that problem later on, or we'll have to put a perturbation on the concept to fix that problem, or it's just not uh, relevant from a cost perspective, and let's just move forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you can get them to move forward, then we'll revisit that issue. Okay. My personal tendency is to say, look, uh, I want to bring this down in a set of layers. I want to flush out the concept so we understand the concept. I want to flush out the components. That is, these are the components I need for my concept. Then I want to go down and flush out the details of the components. So while I'm trying to work on the concept up here, you're wanting to work on the details of a component. So just write that, down in the write, that, yeah. Yeah, write that question down. We'll come back later when we get down to that level. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. A variation on the pebble theme is, um, unlike Alice in Wonderland, I don't want to drop down a rabbit hole, or sure. what I call a technical rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. So, so to, go ahead. That's a very tricky and very difficult question. <laughs> well, well, it is, and, but it's tricky, and it trips people up a lot. It, it it gets in the way of innovation in many, many companies. So it's an important one to ask, and, you know, the strategy is going to be different depending on a number of different factors, but you still gave a, a good, uh, you know, good couple of minutes response as to how you might at least begin to get around those kinds of things. Right now, from where you're sitting, what do you think is driving opportunity in the marketplace? Where do you see the disruption, the opportunity for disruption occurring, where it's really primed for that? Yeah, the biggest area I see uh, where there's going to be disruption right now from a technology perspective is the whole question 
of how does mobility shake out. Ah, yes. Uh, You suddenly have mobility. You have mobility platforms. You have tablets. The leading one, obviously, is the the iPad, but Mm -hmm. you're going to start to see even more functions drop into tablets and to smartphones, and you're starting to see more and more applications, business applications, come into that environment. And so I think there's going to be a huge change even from today, people look at mobility and say, boy, we just made huge strides. I can't figure out what's going to happen further. But I think you're going to see even more change in mobility. I think so, another area... Oh, I was just going to ask you, would, do, do you care to share where you where you see those huge changes coming? Give examples? Uh, well, I think right now the main issue is application of tablets an application of smartphones into the business environment. Sure. When you start to get, when you start to get, uh, I saw an application the other day where someone has a restaurant management system, and in mm-hmm. the old days you'd have have to do it with a time clock and a scheduler, or you'd have to have it done by a web. In this case, the manager of the restaurant is able to see all the detailed statistics, the staffing, and not just staffing, but uh, the, what's happening in the kitchen and everything on a tablet while they're moving around the restaurant so they can dynamically allocate resources as to, well, we have too many tables over here. We need to move some people over here. We need to begin busing these things. So I think you're going to start to see those kind of applications. Well, but and the user inter... I'm sorry, go ahead. What, go what ahead. would be considered to be but would be considered to be fairly mundane business functions are going to become much easier to do. Yes, and and what I was going to say was that part of the ease and part of the adaptability of those is that the user interface is so so intuitive and so seems so natural that why wouldn't you use it? It's not taking a computer scientist to drill down and figure out how it all works. It's right there probably on a very simple dashboard on one screen. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that will make a huge difference. And you started, uh, about a minute ago, you started to go beyond the tablets, and, and I asked you to give an example. Do you remember where you were going with that? Yes, I think uh, in addition to uh, tablets, what you're also going to find is the whole idea of smart surfaces. Uh, surfaces that you interact with uh, by a gesturing or uh, you, not even having to have contact, by a combination of, of contact, gestures, and voice commands that I think that will be another evolution that you're going to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I've seen something here in Kansas City, a company, in fact, uh, that's using the movements of your eyes uh, in order to process uh, make sure you're the right person and to process you on through. It's it's amazing where it's leading us, and, and I know that you, I'm sure that you have um, encountered this as well, but not every business owner is a technologist, but the success of every business is going to be heavily dependent on technology moving forward. It, there's just no way around it. It's so integrated. And, and yes, that's I not going to change. Yeah. I saw two examples, or I heard one example and saw one example the other day. I heard an example. I had to go out to a meeting, and I was listening to a a program on the radio, and they were talking about uh, use by uh, handicapped people uh, of computers where 
they would place a, a little a little reflective piece of uh, material on their forehead. And although they didn't have the use of their hands, they could then move the cursor and even type by just a movement of their head. Wow. And ideas are moving past that. And I also saw the other day an idea, uh, some friends of mine I was discussing uh, some technology with have techniques for using uh, stereoscopic vision to allow vehicles to trail or follow one another uh, where the stereoscopic vision keeps them from from getting too far behind or too close mm-hmm. to the vehicle in front of them. Wow! So I think there's going to be a lot more a lot more uh, done in in the interface to these very highly functional devices. Yeah. Oh, there's there's no doubt about that. Well, another thing uh, I've been hearing a lot about, you know, there used to be a lot of uh, talk about convergence and in convergence within silos, but now what you're hearing about is uh, where you get the real disruptions. Going back to to your book, where you get the real disruptions is where you can look at the the various verticals. And it's the spaces in between, and say, and, and it goes back to technology. Because I have, for example, um, I've developed some kind of software for the healthcare field. It doesn't have to just stay and be applied within the healthcare field. It can maybe with a tweak, or maybe without any tweaks at all, also be used over here in the legal field or in you know another field uh, that causes a major disruption so you can look beyond industries and marry industries and create some of some really huge disruptions that way if you look at the white space in between those verticals uh, there's lots of opportunity i think in addition to those kind of opportunities there's just fundamental fundamental consistencies between various pieces of data and data mining so mm-hmm. fundamental techniques that allow you to look at big data sets and make conclusions about big data sets and predict things into the future are very similar among various types of information, whether it's financial or it's insurance or it's trends in a population. I think there's a lot of similarity that that people who are going to be examining big data are able to do, and they may have uh, a simple application that works on a variety of big data sets. Absolutely, and your book is full of examples like this. Of uh, it takes you through a, a number of different ways to to look at uh, how you might find opportunities and positioning of your product and so forth. Obviously, we cannot go through all of that in today's show. If somebody's interested in getting a copy of your book, Ken, how would they do that? Uh, the easiest way is just. Uh simply to go to www.donotinventbuggywhips.com and click on the order button and there's a couple places that you can order it from. It's available softback and then Kindle. Okay, so how easy is that? Do not invent buggywhips.com. Go out and get yourself a copy of that book. It has a lot more of the same type of insights that Ken delivered this morning. Uh, Ken, we really thank you for being a, our guest today and taking the time to come on the show. To the rest of you, thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next Friday. And uh, just have a very productive week out there. Be disruptive. Thank you, Kelly. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.